Hello, and welcome to Ask Dr. Dawn. The opinions expressed in this program are those of the speakers, and this is a program intended for education and entertainment. It should not be construed as a substitute for a medical consultation. There's a special place in hell, Hades, Sheol, adverse reincarnation, or whatever else you want to call it, for people who irresponsibly destroy the lives of others for their own gain. There's a special place right next door to those for people who simply don't give a damn what the consequences of their actions are, as long as they get what they need or want. And then there's that other group. This group calls them the patsies, the idiots. They're the first responders, the healthcare providers, the educators, the scientists, the people who try to hold it all together against the forces of chaos and ignorance, and particularly the liars. We try to hold it together against the liars. And yeah, we try to help everybody. Included in that everybody are the liars. Also, the people they delude, the people they hypnotize, the people who simply don't have the background or the capacity to see through the bill of goods they're being fed, the fearful, add whatever word you want into this group. But don't forget, we also take care of the liars. That's our curse. We have to help everybody, even if we disagree with them. But that doesn't mean that we can't work to counter the lies, counter the delusions, shine light on the inconsistencies and falsehoods that are regularly presented to people as secret knowledge, the real story behind the conspiracy. Ah, yeah. (laughs) Yeah, conspiracies. Give me a break. Just please, give me a break. While deaths from COVID in children are rare, deaths in children are rare. And statistically, COVID-19 has actually been one of the major causes of death in the pediatric population in the last couple of years, because in America, childhood deaths are rare. Maybe I should say have been rare, because I think we're headed for a major shift. I think the old diseases are going to make a comeback, and they're going to make a comeback in the grade schools, in the nurseries, in the pre-Ks. Our old friends, measles, mumps, rubella, diphtheria, pertussis. Remember them? They never went away. Just like a weed in a garden, you can beat it back, but you can't stop it from making a resurgence. Vigilance is required, and we have a problem. Family physicians and pediatricians all over the country are reporting a drastic upswing in the number of parents refusing basic childhood vaccinations for their kids. A lot of people are disgusted by vaccination, actually. If you drill down to the emotion they're experiencing, it's disgust, the creepiness you feel when you find a a dead animal in the woods crawling with maggots or 
smell some rotted food in the refrigerator, step in something you'd rather not have done with bare feet. This is a very powerful emotion. And there's something about the idea of allowing yourself to be injected with a foreign compound voluntarily that just triggers this in a lot of people. I'll freely acknowledge that. But you have to take a step back and realize that every time you cut yourself or even poke yourself with a needle, you're injecting foreign material into your body. You're injecting viruses and bacteria, as well as microplastics for that matter. It's all hanging around in the environment, clinging to the surface of your skin. And of course, you poke it in when you get poked. Also, every breath you take is contaminated with dust particles, pollen, fragments, and sometimes whole bacteria and viruses. There's a wonderful scene in the movie Outbreak, in a movie theater, a person who has this terrible infection is watching a movie with friends and laughing. And as they laugh, the particles are shown in the film as an animation, leaving their mouth and floating around over the heads of the other people, also laughing, munching on popcorn, breathing and taking in this virus. They're already out there. They're already getting in. If we could only get people to realize that forewarned is forearmed, and that's what a vaccination does. This stuff is coming at you. And if you can warn the immune system with either a sub-lethal dose, a dose that can't make you sick, a mimic of the disease, then your immune system has a chance to prepare and formulate a specific plan, specific antibodies designed just for that disease. It's incredibly rational when you think about it that way. And I find, in terms of the creepiness factor, I can tell you, it was a lot more creepy to walk into the hospital in shoe covers, face shield, and a mask, unvaccinated, than it was to do the same thing four weeks after I had my first vaccination a lot less creepy. And that's how we should be thinking about it. That's how we should be discussing it, in my opinion. Acknowledge the creepiness, but reframe it's so much more creepy without the vaccine than with it, because now you have protection. Now you have some ammunition, a magic bullet against that particular illness. Let me tell you a little story about Japan. In 1950, the death rate from pertussis in children, that's whooping cough, by the way, was 147 per 100,000 children. Shortly after that, the whole cell pertussis vaccine was introduced and began being given to children. By 1972, instead of 147 children per 100,000, it was two children per million who were dying of pertussis in Japan. That's a pretty substantial improvement. But there was a problem. That whole cell pertussis vaccine was really good, but it caused side effects. A small percentage of children developed inflammation of the brain. Rarely, they would die of it. In all of Japan, there would be one or two deaths from complications of the pertussis vaccine. 
in the 70s. Later on, there was a political movement against vaccination in Japan, and the Japanese government complied and stopped giving the pertussis vaccine, or at least stopped making it mandatory. Many families opted out. By 1979, the mortality rate was up to 11 per 100,000 population, and then the old vaccine was reinstituted. In 1981, a new acellular pertussis vaccine was introduced and widely accepted. We got the rate down to 0.1 per 100,000, and we've been doing well in Japan. But since 1991, pertussis has started to increase in young adults, aged 20 to 44, clearly increasing because this less dangerous vaccine is also less good at creating persistent immunity. The immunity fades. It's a double-edged sword. But revaccinating with the acellular pertussis is becoming a thing and will probably be how we manage this disease. Now, I will add that pertussis rarely kills adults. It makes them cough, sometimes coughing until they vomit for weeks on end, but it doesn't usually kill them. It's the babies that get killed. So maybe this is the best compromise that can be achieved for this particular disease. And that's part of my point. This is not a binary decision. One could make the case that letting your child have chickenpox is an option. It's hard to make the case that letting your child have measles is an option, since the rate of encephalitis and persistent brain damage from measles is way too high to be acceptable. Everything's a trade-off. And it's good to have a dynamic tension and a rational fact-based dialogue debating the points of the trade-off. But we don't have that right now. What we have is an algorithm-driven feedback loop of exaggeration, sensationalism, and hysteria that is feeding the fears and uncertainties of an entire generation of parents who support each other in their doubts and amplify each other's doubts through social media, and who, for reasons I would like to say best known to the perpetrators, but I know their reasons, they're making money. They're getting ads. They're getting clicks. That's translating into actual revenue. And it's a lot easier of a job than finding meaningful work. So here we have it. We're fighting a rearguard action against an onslaught of misinformation, misunderstanding, and fear. And all we can do is encourage those who can to tell stories of success and also stories of tragedy, to remind people what these infectious diseases look like, to remind people how devastating they are, because we've forgotten. We've forgotten. And we've lost our social fear of the real enemy, and have substituted a ghost, the ghost of conspiracy, the ghost of big pharma, the ghost of hmm, whatever, you know, do they, in other countries, they say they have contraceptives in them. In other places and times, they've said it contains a, a mini transceiver that's going to turn you into some kind of robot or cyborg. Whatever will fly for the fear factor, and some of it's so absurd that if it wasn't tragic, I'd be laughing, but I can't laugh about this. So I'm going to spend a little time 
talking about both the legitimate debates that belong in a discussion of vaccination and the illegitimate debates, the things that really aren't debates but are false flag operations. So on the topic of illegitimate debates, let's go to the sort of poster child for that, the paper by Andrew Wakefield, published in The Lancet in 1998, that found a correlation between receiving the measles, mumps, and rubella vaccine, which is commonly given between the ages of 15 and 18 months, and the development of autism, which is commonly diagnosed between the ages of 20 and 36 months. The original speculation in Wakefield's paper was that the measles, mumps, and rubella vaccine, a live virus vaccine, caused an inflammatory condition of the gut, and the intestinal uh, dysfunction affected the brain development. There were a few problems with this paper, one of which is that all of the children in the study came from a clinic for children with inflammatory bowel disease. There was no control group. There was no comparison group of non-autistic children, and therefore no causal conclusion can possibly be drawn here. In effect, the paper was a syllogism. What's that? Well, I'll give you an example. All cats have four legs. This animal has four legs, therefore it's a cat. No, it isn't. And no, it wasn't. I recall, already practicing medicine at the time, that somehow mercury, a preservative used in vaccines at the time, crept in as being the culprit here. But that actually isn't in the original Wakefield paper. There's a lot of stuff that isn't in the Wakefield paper, including anything that remotely looks like a placebo or a control group. Three years later, Wakefield's lab was offered funding to conduct a larger study with a control group to substantiate or refute the original conclusions, basis from which to begin a scientific study. Allow me to throw just a couple spitballs at this elaborate uh, edifice of measles, mumps, and rubella vaccine causing autism. Here's one. As far as mercury is concerned, mercury was removed from the MMR vaccine in 2001, and yet over the subsequent two decades, autism rates have continued to increase. Oh, well, so much for that argument. Here's another. Researchers at Boston Children's Hospital and Harvard Medical School have demonstrated that children who will go on to develop autism as a diagnosis at two to three years can be identified ahead of time by differences in their EEGs by the age of three months. Specifically, the delta and gamma wave power trajectories consistently distinguish infants who will eventually have this autism diagnosis from infants who will not. They have a steeper rate of increase in a particular type of wave power function called delta power. Higher-risk infants also had lower frontal wave gamma power. So an imbalance in 
the brain, already present at three months of age, is a predictor for autism with or without the influence of vaccination. That pretty much blows that theory thoroughly out of the water, if you ask me. These children are born vulnerable. What's causing that? Well, there is a parallel to increasing age of the father, but that's not really enough for us to truly understand what's going on. That's just a hypothesis, an observation based on epidemiology, and nothing to establish that ever-important concept of cause and effect. The immediate analogy that occurs to me here is a group of children sitting around a campfire telling ghost stories about the crying woman or the woman in white or some other campfire monster. And the children become so frightened of the ghosts that they run off into the woods to hide the woods where the real predators are. We're so afraid of vaccines that we're forgetting about those germs that are in the very air we breathe, waiting for us to give them fertile ground for reproduction so that they can fulfill their life's promise of making more germs and infecting more people and making even more germs. The one who makes the most copies of themselves wins. And I do blame the amplification algorithms and the perverse financial structure of the Internet for a lot of deaths in this regard. Social media really starts to get rolling around 2007 and 2008. By 2014, there was plenty of vaccine hesitancy here in California and in other places in the world. And we had a lovely measles outbreak in Disneyland. 147 people across the United States got measles, some directly from riding behind the infected person on one of those rides. Others, of course, brought the disease home and gave it to other people. There were also outbreaks in Canada and Mexico from index patients who were in Disneyland at the time. About 45% of those who got sick were unvaccinated. Another 43% either didn't know or couldn't be ascertained. About 20% of those who got measles ended up in the hospital. By the mid-2000s, the number of people requesting exemptions from vaccines had increased 600% to about 3% of the population in the early 2010s. Now it's up to more like 6%. That 6% is nationwide because in California, they passed a bill, SB 277, that did away with personal belief exemptions, which of course spawned a small cottage industry of unscrupulous people who would sell medical exemptions. And also, I'll add a backlash against doctors who conscientiously believe that their patients had been harmed by vaccine, which every now and then is true for a specific vaccine. In 2019, there was another major measles epidemic. Outbreaks in undervaccinated communities in Washington State, New York, California, and elsewhere. There were 1,282 documented cases. And this was very, very close to letting the virus out of the bag and making it an endemic issue again. We'd almost eradicated measles 20 years earlier. Now we're fighting another rearguard action just to keep it from getting worse. The issue has become fully politicized, 
It's no longer a rational debate. People who are proponents of vaccination routinely receive death threats if they're in the legislature. And Richard Pan, the pediatrician and California state senator who's been a true leader on health issues in the state for several decades, had to be placed under police protection and was subjected to tons of racist and other spurious abuse. For many, vaccination has become a political litmus test. The brain has left the building. And this is now no longer an issue about epidemiology or the merits or lack thereof of vaccination versus natural infection. It's now about something completely different. It's about freedom. Well, okay. All right. I'll take that debate. Let's have that discussion. Let's talk about freedom. I heard the expression once, your right to wave your fist around ends at my nose. Meaning, till you hit me, go you. Exercise your First Amendment rights. But even then, we limit them. It might be funny to yell fire in a crowded theater, but you're likely to go to jail for it, especially if people are injured in the stampede for the exits. I've been hearing a lot of driver's license arguments raised in the current debate about gun control and uh, legislation to try to limit gun violence. Well, I think the driver's license is worth thinking about in the context of what the individual owes to society. Now, you may be surprised to learn that the Supreme Court actually heard a vaccination protest case all the way back in 1904. It all started back in 1901 when there was an epidemic of smallpox in Massachusetts. As the epidemic swept through the northeast of Massachusetts and the town of Cambridge, the state reacted by requiring all adults to receive a smallpox inoculation subject to a $5 fine. Pastor Henning Jacobson believed sincerely that he had been injured by previous smallpox vaccines, and I'm inclined to believe him. He argued that the vaccine law violated the state and federal constitutions. The argument here was about the power of the states to regulate people's behavior for the protection of public health. The final decision by the Supreme Court was, why, yes, they actually do have that power. And I must acknowledge that back in 1905, when the case was decided, probably every single one of those Supreme Court justices had lost at least one sibling to childhood infectious disease and knew what smallpox looked like because they'd seen it. It's a very scary disease. Once you've seen it, you don't want to get it. So I do believe that Henning Jacobson thought that he would be more harmed by the vaccine or by a repeat vaccination, more accurately, since he had been vaccinated in the past. And he may have had a point. And he had to pay the $5 fine. There are sorts of fines that we could impose for choosing not to vaccinate. For example, if you choose not to vaccinate, then you probably have to choose 
to homeschool your child, which could have a profound influence on both your child's education and your ability to support your family. But on the other hand, fist and nose, right? Your child's unvaccinated self is a threat to other children in the classroom, particularly children with special needs. Should you have the right to endanger others? Well, back to the driver's license. No, you need to show that you're legitimately capable of not breaking traffic laws and not running into people in the sidewalk. And if you can pass the test, it's a fairly low bar, then you're allowed to take a two-ton lethal weapon and send it where you will. Of course, if you're driving the car, you do have some skin in the game about hitting a wall. Rather unlike the person with pertussis who coughs in the face of a one-month-old infant and kills them. And then there's uh, another common argument that all of the advances in infant mortality are due to improvements in sanitation and housing and overall standard of living. And therefore, vaccinations are completely unnecessary because a healthy child is able to uh, survive these diseases. That is, you know, completely ridiculous as an argument goes, because we've done the natural experiment in uh, 2014 and again in 2019. We've established that healthy, privileged children do die and sustain brain damage from measles. So can we please stop having that argument now? It's a half-truth and a half-lie, and it doesn't change anything about the need for vaccination in children. And I mean, another argument is, well, so many people are saying it. How can so many people be saying it if it isn't true or if there isn't at least some truth to it? Well, there you have the wonderful illusion of the Internet algorithm, which amplifies the outrageous and makes it seem larger than it is. A nonprofit group called the Center for Countering Digital Hate published a report in 2021 titled The Disinformation Dozen. It estimated that about two-thirds of all anti-vaccine content on Facebook and Twitter comes from just 12 sources. If social media platforms simply enforce their own standards on these 12 people and their organizations, most vaccine-related disinformation circulating online would dwindle away. Think about this. If I shop for shoes online something that I've learned not to do unless I want to see a whole lot of ads for shoes show up on the margins of my Google searches, I can ignore them. But suppose you shop for vaccination information and these very same tracking entities sell that information to someone who's interested in reaching you as a targeted group, perhaps a woman who also buys diapers on Amazon. That information would, of course, be part of your profile. And you could be targeted by anti-vaccine groups. Some of them are raising money to help spread the word to the public, and many of them are selling products on their websites. So they obviously have a vesting interest in driving traffic to their sites. So I'd like to end this segment with a few statistics. I'm reliably informed by the CDC that your risk of being struck by lightning is about one in 500,000 per year. One's risk of getting Guillain-Barre syndrome, which is an autoimmune 
paralytic condition is about one in a million after flu vaccine. Well, if we assume that everyone in the country walks outside, and just if we assume that everyone got a flu vaccine, which is, of course, laughably not true, we'd end up with 600 lightning strikes per year and 300 cases of Guillain-Barre syndrome. And uh, do you know anyone who's been struck by lightning? Any of your friends? Any of the people you follow on Facebook? Yeah, right. It's rare. So let's talk about measles vaccine and encephalitis. Again, one in a million people who receive measles vaccine will suffer from brain inflammation. On the other hand, if you catch measles, one out of a thousand people who catch measles will get encephalitis. Currently, we have about 1,200 cases of measles-related encephalitis per year. Pre-vaccine, we had four million cases per year, and the population of the United States was much smaller then. Pre-vaccine, we had 4,000 cases of encephalitis a year. We have about 20 million kids in the United States under the age of four. So that's 40 million measles shots. That's 40 cases of encephalitis, or 1% of what the pre-vaccine rate was. The bugs are out there. The predators are in the woods. They're not going away. We have defenses against them. Don't be stupid. Look at the numbers. Believe the science. And get yourself, your kids, your grandkids, and your neighbors to understand that the benefit far outweighs the risk. If we agree to protect each other, then we're all protected. Almost 20 years ago, a rather remarkable and somewhat counterintuitive study was published by Dr. Dean Ornish and his colleagues at the University of California, San Francisco. It was a study that suggested that people who had prostate cancer could actually affect the progression of the disease by lifestyle change. The initial study was a small pilot trial of men with prostate cancer who elected to follow a strict and supported diet and lifestyle program. The results showed a reduction in the PSA and improved prognosis of their prostate cancer. About a year later, they published another study showing that the same thing, pretty much, lifestyle and dietary intervention improved the quality of life of men being managed with active surveillance of prostate cancer. They kept that study going, and in 2008, the team did prostate biopsies and looked at the genetic expression of the tumor in men with low-risk prostate cancer before and after initiation of the intensive nutrition and lifestyle program. This is a three-year duration, about, and they were able to show substantial differences in what was going on in the DNA. In other words, what messenger RNA was being made by the cancer cells. And all of these pointed in the direction of improved immune function and improved cellular metabolism. In other words, the cancer cells were becoming less like cancer cells and more like prostate cells. They were able to show that in men with early stage prostate cancer who did these lifestyle changes, they were able to avoid progression of their cancer and the need to go on and 
have surgical or, or other interventions for treatment. Another biopsy study done in 2013 showed that men with the biopsy-proven low-risk prostate cancer who had participated in previous studies had long-term improvements in both their telomerase activity and the telomere length of their immune cells. In other words, their aging had reversed a little bit, not just in their prostate cancer, but in their body overall. So let's take a few minutes to talk about the possible ways that lifestyle could affect cancer and some of the mechanisms for that. It's important, first of all, to emphasize that prostate cancer is driven by androgens, male hormones, especially testosterone. And this explains why this condition is treated with androgen deprivation therapies, including castration or drugs that turn off the gonadotropin-releasing hormone in the brain and therefore prevent the testes from being stimulated in the first place. Diet has an important impact on testosterone. Lots of studies show that prostate function, including prostate hypertrophy, can be linked to certain dietary practices. Adherence to a Mediterranean diet, for example, has been associated with a reduction in overall prostate cancer risk and a reduction in prostate androgens, that is to say, a subset of male hormones that is specifically stimulatory to the prostate. We think this is because of the balance of protein, carbohydrate, and fat, especially low-saturated fatty acids and higher mono- and polyunsaturated fatty acids, and certain phytonutrients. Omega-3 fatty acids like EPA and DHA have been shown to improve immune resistance to prostate cancer in animal studies, and derivatives of EPA and DHA have been shown to inhibit directly cancer cell proliferation. Certain phytonutrients have been shown to be associated with a reduction in prostate cancer incidence, such as beta-cytosterol, which is found in beans and oats, lycopene, a red carotenoid found in tomatoes and other red vegetables, and a compound called oluropein, which is in virgin olive oil. It's known that the beta-cytosterol and the lycopene influence the testosterone dynamics, and they impact cellular signaling within the immune and the endocrine systems. Many studies show that using these nutraceuticals can have a positive impact on preventing both benign prostatic hypertrophy and prostate cancer. But just as everything else, there's probably also a profound indirect effect of diet on the microbiome that's influencing prostate cancer. A recent study I shared with you some weeks ago showed that in an animal model of prostate cancer, using transplanted fecal material from the castration-resistant mice who were still responding to hormone deprivation therapy to mice who had lost their ability to respond, restored the response pattern. In other words, something was going on at the level of the bacteria. Further study there showed that bacteria were making testosterone and testosterone-like compounds in the gut and that this was the source of the resistance to hormone or androgen deprivation therapy.
In other words, the gut started turning into a testicle and making its own androgens because the microbiome shifted its production of those compounds to maintain the microbiome where it had been, going back to the good old days of that particular microclimate. And testosterone was a part of it. So let's make our own since the body's not supplying it anymore. Well, great for the microbiome, but not so great for the guy with the prostate cancer who's the host of that microbiome. Now, when I thought about that for a moment, it seemed to me weird that testosterone would have such a big influence on the microbiome because blood levels of testosterone are so low. It didn't seem like enough would be getting into the microbiome to you know, become a necessary contributor to a particular microbiome uh, homeostasis setup. But in fact, I wasn't remembering about the bile. See, testosterone is excreted in the bile. And so the concentration of androgens in the intestine is about 70 times higher than that in the bloodstream. At that point, you can imagine that the particular mix of bacteria in the microbiome, in a given microbiome that has available testosterone coming in through that bile, would make use of the testosterone to maintain itself either as a fuel or for some other purpose. And uh, should the supply from the gallbladder be interrupted, if possible, the microbiota would start making testosterone themselves in order to maintain the proper environmental mix to perpetuate their happy little microclimate. Crazy, huh? Well, it turns out crazy but true. Well, let's follow that thread for just a second. What's the logical conclusion? If testosterone's coming out in the bile and has such an influence on the microbiome that the microbiome seeks to maintain its presence when it's taken away, well, doesn't that imply that the same thing would be true for females? After all, in females, estrogen is being dropped into the bile at levels that are substantially higher than the levels of testosterone on the average. In one mouse study establishing that, in fact, this sort of thing is going on, they took gut bacteria from adult male mice and they transplanted them into immature females. And that caused the immature females to develop a more male-type microbiome. And lo and behold, they got elevated testosterone and it messed up their immune system. So the composition of the intestinal microbiome is influential in sex hormone levels. And it also is regulatory in some way. We need to, oh my God, not another level deeper, right? We shouldn't be studying the microbiome. We should be studying the microgenderome because it's quite possible that we need male and female profiles in our research. And if we mix males and females, we may be introducing confounds into our research. Oh no, please don't tell me that. We have so much confounded research because most research is done on male animals, and that includes humans. It's so very hard to know whether you can apply things to females when the work is all done on males, and here's just another example of it. But wait, there's more. So we've already talked about this. Sex hormones that are produced endogenously in the ovaries or the testes are transformed in the liver. They go into the bloodstream. They go into the liver. 
There, the liver conjugates them with other compounds and excretes them into the bile. Basically, it turns them from a lipid-soluble compound that can get into cells directly to a water-soluble compound that can't get into cells and can be contained in a bag like a gallbladder or a bladder and stay there and not soak through and get back into the bloodstream. That's what conjugation does. Well, then they're delivered into the intestinal contents in the bile. And then, depending upon the intestinal microbiome, these conjugated sex hormones can be deconjugated. In other words, that molecular bond that's keeping it water-soluble can be cut by specific microorganisms, and that yields active sex hormones that can be reabsorbed into the blood or biotransformed into different steroid molecules because, hey, those little bacteria are highly creative, and let's not even get started on the fungi. The number of enzymes that break down this conjugation is pretty amazing. The Microbiome Project GI database has found at least 112 novel versions of glucuronidase, the enzyme that breaks up the conjugation in the human microbiome. And presumably, many of these are preparing the sex hormone to be utilized in some fashion by those microbiome organisms. Why else would they do that? Well, maybe they just want to eat the chemical bond, but something tells me that there's even more to this and that we've got another layer or two before we've really peeled this onion. So basically, if you give a drug that prevents androgens from being made in the testes of an animal, the microbiome will compensate by making its own testosterone capable of converting androgen precursors, types of you know, cholesterol molecules, into active androgens right there within the microbiome without any help from the testes or the ovaries. This is the source of the castration resistance prostate cancer problem. So given that, as always, there's more research to be done, what are the clinical take-homes for men, particularly those with either a family history of prostate cancer or perhaps dysplastic findings, not quite cancer in other words, on a prostate biopsy? Well, probably the best advice for starters is a minimally processed plant food-based diet that's high in fiber, vitamins and minerals, and includes diverse sources of phytonutrients. That would mean lots of different fruits and vegetables, a rainbow of red, blues, purples, yellows, and oranges, because that's the Mediterranean diet. High in fish and fish oil, low in saturated fat, and probably really low in dairy. There's some particular properties about dairy as a growth hormone that make me very nervous about it in people with a increased risk of prostate cancer. There's also a really interesting 2014 study that I want to mention to you. This was looking at walnuts on prostate-specific, on PSA levels. And one of the principal phytonutrients in walnuts is ellagic acid, E-L-L-A-G-I-C. And it's metabolized by specific members of the intestinal microbiome into two compounds, urolithin A and urolithin B. In cell studies, these metabolites were found to downregulate the messenger RNA and protein levels of both prostate-specific antigen 
and the androgen receptor in a prostate cell line. Urolithins inhibit androgen receptor-mediated PSA expression at the transcriptional level. In other words, they block the production of PSA, and they induce apoptosis, cell death, in prostate cancer cells. So the breakdown products by a healthy microbiome of walnuts actually suppress the expression of the androgen receptor in the prostate itself, making the prostate less vulnerable to being hyped up and overstimulated by testosterone. And you can measure that by seeing a downregulation in PSA levels. And in cell culture, we can see that the cancer cells are literally induced to die by these non-toxic compounds. So a diet rich in walnuts, probably not a bad idea, but you're going to need a healthy microbiome in order to get those walnuts turned into urolithin to protect your prostate. Now, I've gone wandering down the microbiome rabbit hole again, but I want to circle back to Dr. Dean Ornish's original work because there were two other factors besides diet that were really important there, and one of them was regular exercise. Keeping that fat-to-muscle ratio in a healthy range is extremely important to lowering your cancer risk. Staying away from diabetes, keeping your insulin levels low, we know that that's pro-inflammatory. And inflammation, well, that's the spark that sets the fire if there's tinder lying around. And it's a complex and multi-layered process. We want to hit it in all the directions we can. So regular exercise, yes, maintaining a healthy body weight, Yes, and very much last but not least, stress reduction. That was a big part of the study. Meditation, mindfulness, reducing anger, because all of those things, all of those hyped up sympathetic nervous system activities suppress the activity of the immune system, causing the immune system not to be alert for those first cancer cells. Stress kills And not just through your heart, but also by raising your cancer risk. So hard hard as it is for me to slow down and relax, I'm really making a concerted effort this year to stop and meditate and breathe and make sure that I have moments of gratitude and that I get myself into that lovely post-massage rest and digest modality at least once a day. And I strongly urge you to do the same. Nearly a year ago, the FDA gave the green light to a controversial new drug to treat Alzheimer's disease. Now lawmakers are attempting to amend the process that led to its approval. You may remember my irritability back in September of 2021 when the FDA approved Adacanumab, an antibody drug shown to reduce the accumulation of plaques in the brain associated with the progression of Alzheimer's. There was an almost unanimous vote against this approval by the independent panel of experts. In spite of this, the agency used the fast-track approval method to approve the drug, which was developed by a biotechnology company called Biogen. Actually, three of the advisory panel members resigned in protests against the decision. By the way, this approval is the subject of multiple federal regulatory investigations, and I hope they nail the 
people to the wall because this is a complete abusive process. The drug itself is a joke. It's extremely expensive and clinical benefit could not be demonstrated. Let me say that again. Clinical benefit, actually improvement in function, could not be demonstrated. What they saw was decreased formation of plaque, that it did. But like many other drugs that affect plaque formation, we're not seeing the clinical results that we would expect to see if our hypothesis about this plaque was actually correct. Maybe the plaque isn't the cause of Alzheimer's. Maybe it's a a result or a marker. Markers are great as long as you don't mistake association for causality. And I'm deeply afraid that we've been wasting energy and spinning our wheels for over three decades now thinking that plaque was the problem rather than the symptom. But getting back to this ridiculous approval and the structure that allowed it is the purpose of this discussion. This rapid drug approval pathway is coming under fire because since its inception, the program has led to 279 treatments reaching the market, about two-thirds of them within the past decade as the accelerated approval dodge has been identified by Big Pharma. Now, this started out as a special program for a small number of drugs, primarily drugs to treat HIV. But now, almost all cancer drugs are going through accelerated or some other expedited pathway, and that's probably a very bad idea. Part of the rule with accelerated approval it was that we'll go ahead and approve the drug on minimal minimal evidence, but you're going to have to produce follow-up studies in order to do your part of the due diligence of the approval process. However, the pharmaceutical companies have been extraordinarily slow, despite the fact that they're raking in cash, to do any of the promised follow-up studies, which are, after all, going to impair shareholder value by adding to overhead of the business. The FDA has not got much power to enforce this negotiated agreement. The FDA also needs more agency oversight and other changes that would prevent pharmaceutical firms from abusing this. Basically, you need an audit trail and a recheck. If I send a person for a mammogram and they fail to go, I should be able to figure that out. I should have some sort of way to identify that, oh, they didn't get their mammogram. I need to call them and remind them, etc. If you don't have that kind of check system, people just, in the case of the pharmaceuticals, they just ignore it, don't do the studies, and continue to sell the drugs and improve shareholder value. Surrogate endpoints are the problem. Instead of showing that the drug actually works, which takes time, particularly for something like a cancer drug, they'll use, in a cancer study, tumor shrinkage. But tumor shrinkage doesn't actually correlate terribly well with patient survival. And so is it really worth paying for this therapy, particularly as some of these new cancer drugs have turned out to have really significant side effects and induce autoimmune disease? Now, these cancer drugs that go through the accelerated pathway make it to market about three years on the average than they would if they went through standard routes. But also... Some of them probably wouldn't have been approved in the first place because the side effects of some of these drugs are turning out to be very substantial. And we in medicine and clinical 
medicine are only just beginning to discover it. Now, given HIV drugs where, you know, we didn't have any alternatives, so of course we're going to push those through and, and be glad and deal with whatever side effects materialize. And by the way, substantial side effects have materialized here. But with cancer, there are lots of alternatives, and jumping onto a really toxic drug because it shrinks tumors but kills patients in the long run more than uh, experience clinical benefit, I think we've jumped into that one with both feet. In 2021, an analysis found that 13% of the drugs that were granted accelerated approval between 1992 and 2016 hadn't been converted to full approval meaning that they hadn't submitted their paperwork or done their post-market trials. And despite this fact, 13% of these drugs remained on the market for a median of nine and a half years without the data, without being pulled. To compound the, as my mother used to say, to add insult to injury on the subject of the adakanumab, Biogen has nine years to complete its confirmatory trial to show that it actually benefits Alzheimer's. Meanwhile, each Alzheimer's patient who gets put on it will cost the system about $70,000 a year. And because it's Medicare, if a doctor prescribes it, Medicare will have to pay for it. Talk about blowing the budget. Occasionally, the FDA will revoke something. For example, in 2011, the FDA revoked its accelerated approval for an antibody drug, Bevacizumab, for breast cancer because it didn't work. But that was a problem because in public hearings, people made tons of emotional testimonies trying to keep the approval in place. Accelerated approval offers a, quote, valuable source of hope, noted the National Organization for Rare Disorders. But it's not the FDA's job to give people hope. It's to give us drugs that are safe and effective. There are other countries that have accelerated approval programs, but those programs actually gave their federal agencies teeth to have authority to make sure that the companies followed through on their commitments. Can we actually give a federal agency increased authority to regulate business in the current political climate? Don't hold your breath. Expect lengthening of the bureaucratic process through a complex appeals process to get approvals rescinded, an automatic revocation of approvals once confirmatory trials were one year overdue was an initial proposal that got shot out of the water. That, by the way, my friends, makes sense. If you don't follow through, don't return the library book, you get a fine. Another way to do this would be to have Medicare pay a lower reimbursement rate for accelerated approval treatments that haven't turned in their paperwork and done their post-trials, that sort of lights a fire under them. Yeah, they can get 70000 a year when they prove it works. In the meantime, yeah, we'll give you 20000 And that'll cover your costs of production while you're working very hard to validate the concept in the first place. Why should we be on the hook for paying for the research that leads to the development of these drugs and then be on the hook for paying for the full price of the drugs before they're actually validated as safe and, underlining it, effective, before they're actually shown to increase patient lifespan. Well, that's about all for this week's podcast. 
please go to AskDrDawn.com for news about our future plans. Or follow my tweets at at AskDRDawn. For now, this is Dr. Dawn saying so long and stay healthy. Ask Dr. Dawn is brought to you by Jiva Media. Production and editing by Charles Bansky. Music by John Scoville.